1: You're listening to the Southern Outdoorsman Podcast.
0: Make sure you like and subscribe to the podcast. You can check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. If you'd like to support the show, you can go to patreon.com forward slash the Southern Outdoorsman. Now let's get to the episode.
2: Presented by Hunting Exchange, a marketplace for serious hunters by serious hunters.
1: Welcome back everybody to another episode of the Southern Outdoorsman Podcast. Today we're talking with... Once again, a southern legend, Mr. Bobby Worthington, on the unkillable bucks in your area. Bobby, how are you doing?
3: Oh, I'm doing great. How are you fellas doing?
1: Um, I'm doing excellent, and it was great to meet you at ATA. Uh, I saw you walking by, and I turned to Jacob. I was like, was that Bobby Worthington? And Jacob uh, turned around and went running after you. He's like, Bobby. <laughs> Jacob, how are you? Oh, doing doing
0: well, doing well. Yeah, Bobby, it was great to see you again at uh, ATA. That was a good time, and uh, meet you and your buddy Paul, um, which uh, he, he'll he probably be a, a guest on the podcast come this summer over an interesting topic, uh, which we'll, we'll kind of save for that with the TV show he was just on. But, uh, of course, you got Michael Pike, the dill here. He's got his face full of boudin sausage right now. Yeah, stuff in my
2: face. <laughs>
0: what are you calling that sausage? Boudin. It's B-O-U-D-I-N. Um, it's a uh, Louisiana Cajun style uh, sausage. It's got uh, bear meat, ground meat, and rice in it. Uh, With some uh, spices, and it's really, really good. So, it's from my my black bear killed in Arkansas this year. So, had a Weaver Meat Processing make us a a custom batch, and uh, it's outstanding. So,
3: (laughs) I have to quit talking about food. I'm sitting here hungry as a woodpecker with a headache right now. (laughs) Well,
0: Bobby, for this yeah. top, for, I was gonna say for this for this oh. episode, we're, you know, we're excited to have you on here. It's, we've had some great feedback from our, our last episode we had with you, um, and actually, I just did a listener success story today from a gentleman out in Texas, uh, Mark Smith. Uh, who killed uh, an outstanding East uh, Texas uh, whitetail uh, using a lot of your kind of tips and tactics on, you know, staying in the game uh, while in the stands. So we've had some great feedback from the last couple episodes, but uh, I know the listeners are extremely excited about this week's episode of talking to, you know, the unkillable bucket and really dive into this topic. I,
3: I, I'm i glad that people's able to use what i say you never know how it's going to be received and whether people where you're too elementary and you're talking for them or too advanced but i listen to you know something just came to mind before we get started i listen to some of my podcasts i'm i'm beginning to think that when you talk you don't sound the same as you think you do I heard part of that last podcast, and I might have to admit that if you pay real close attention to me talking, you might discover that my command of the English language might not quite be on par with some people out there, fellas. <laughs> Would you agree to that?
1: I, I'd say you're, you're quite the poet. <laughs> I tell you, I've seen some
3: of my words, they they might not be said exactly right in a time or two another word come out the one I had in mind you know as a fella gets older I think he tends to do that at least I have noticed it with me fellas that's like that secret service guy back oh a couple of years ago you fellas heard about that guy who tried to kill Donald Trump when he was in office didn't you well you know there was a secret service guy the guy that was on duty that day, he was like me, he's kind of long in the tooth. he's up about 60 I think, and he was on duty and a bad guy jumped over the fence with a gun and he started running toward the president. Well, the secret service guy, he cut across the lawn to intercept him and when the bad guy started raising his gun, the secret service guy hollered out, Mickey Mouse. Well, the president, he looked around and the bad guy, he looked over his shoulder and saw the secret service man coming at him and he stopped and the Secret Service guy tackled him and he put cuffs on him. Well later on that evening they're having a little get together and they were thanking that Secret Service guy for the good job he done and everything and after a while the President got him off to the side and said, Sir, said, I want you to know how much I appreciate you. He said, I really think that you saved my life. Then he said, but I gotta ask you one thing. He said, why in the world did you holler Mickey Mouse? And that Secret Service guy said, man, he said, I'm sorry. He said, I meant to holler Donald Duck. (laughs) 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 It's the same thing with me sometimes. Sometimes I don't announce a word quite right, and sometimes it just comes out plum wrong other than the one I had in mind. A few months ago, fellas, I heard somebody say something about a bouquet of flowers. And I said, what in the world is a bouquet of flowers? And they said, you know, it's a bunch of flowers you put together and, and, and make up a bundle of them. I said, you mean a bouquet of flowers? And they said, no, Bobby, it's, it's a bouquet. And to be quite honest with these fellows, I was a little shocked to hear that. Here I have not on the 60 years been saying that wrong. And you guys may be just in the same boat I am, but I certainly thought it was a bouquet of cars. Uh Jacob, you said I had a pretty good listening audience, uh, but I'm now that I listen to myself, I just don't think it's because people are all that happy hearing me talking. I got an idea of what's going on out there. I think that somebody, they got my podcast and they combined it with one of them Scrabble games and they're sitting around betting on what word I was wanting to use. (laughs) (laughs) One thing about it, they won't have to fret on me using too big a word. Refrigerator is the biggest word I know of. (laughs) They won't have to get a dictionary out anyway. I don't know why people try to correct what I'm saying. It ain't like it's going to take anyway at my age. Fellas, now that I'm old enough to die, I'm about as independent as a hog on ice. So so it, it ain't going to take much of me. And it never has, really. But I have been corrected over the years, and that bouquet and bouquet, was really, it really shocked me. All right, fellas, I want <clears throat> to, as you said, this is, The topic is the unkillable buck and I want to talk briefly on this subject. The subject comes to my mind because this season I've been hunting a buck I call the beast that I have come to believe is unkillable at this time in his life. Now, I'm sure there's a few questions that might come to Watteau hunters' minds when they hear the term the unkillable buck. First, I think hunters might wonder if there really are uh, bucks that are unkillable while using legal and fire chase tactics to try to harvest them. And if the answer is yes, I'm sure another question that might come to mind is, what makes a particular buck unkillable? Also, some hunters may wonder how they could identify such bucks and also what they might do if they discover they are hunting one of these bucks. Well, I'm going to take a few minutes here in this podcast to speak about the unkillable buck. It's been a subject that I've pondered on and had in my mind for many years. And while I'm talking about this subject, I will address the questions I just mentioned, Which, just thinking about it. I think those are what hunters are going to wonder about most. Now, I'm sure you and a lot of listeners might have other questions, too, but this is going to cover a good part of them. I want to say up front that an unkillable buck is a very rare creature. In all of my years of trophy hunting, aside from this season, I've only hunted two other bucks that I believe were unkillable. Now, I may have hunted other such bucks, and I may not have been aware of it, but I'm saying to my knowledge, I've only hunted two others. I'm sure after this podcast comes out, though, guys, that a lot of individuals, will immediately decide that they are hunting or how hunting an an unkillable buck. However, I don't think that most individuals in their hunting career will ever come across one of these bucks or recognize one as such if they do. But even though this is the case, I do think it would be interesting and hopefully educational to my listeners if we explore this subject. First, I think it would be good if we considered what it is that makes a buck unkillable. You know, the number one characteristic which keeps mature bucks alive is not their cunning or their survival instincts. Neither is it their nose and their ability to use the wind to their favor. The number one thing that keeps mature bucks alive is their nomadic movements. It is the fact that during the rut, mature bucks have no pattern to their movements and they travel over a very large range. I don't think you could really call this a survival mechanism. It is an inherent trait in mature bucks that makes it very unlikely that one will pass by any given stand location more than a time or two, if all, during an entire deer season. And really, when you combine combine this trait with the fact that as bucks get older they tend to move less and less in daylight, then, if you think about it, you can understand why most hunters will never kill over one of two two truly mature bucks, if any, during a whole lifetime of hunting, and very seldom will they ever see a truly a buck that's in the truly older age class, as I would call it. And, and fellas, I it used may differ, and my listeners that may differ, but I think I call a older age class six and a half years old and older is about where I cut that off at. Well. Even considering that there are nomadic movements and survival instincts, guys, I don't believe there is a buck that moves during daylight in a hunted area that is not in jeopardy of getting killed sooner or later. The only behavior characteristic which I believe makes a buck unkillable is if one is totally nocturnal in his movements. Now, guys, I'm not referring to his movements during the summer months when bucks are in velvet. I'm talking about a buck that is nocturnal after he sheds his velvet and throughout the rut and of course, as you know, in most states, this is where the we this is the time we can legally hunt them this is a few states now will allow velvet hunting, but i'm I'm talking about bucks that are nocturnal after they shed the velvet and throughout the rut, and this is when the hunting season is in most states and then especially in the south, we don't usually open our seasons as you guys know early enough to hunt velvet bucks. As a buck ages, he tends to move more and more at night. And the only thing that will get most four-and-a-half-year-olds and older bucks that live in a pressured area on their feet during daylight is the breeding season. However, guys, there are a few rare bucks that have enough restraint and survival instincts to stay in their sanctuary until after dark, even during the rut. Now, you guys know I talk a lot about hunting during the rut, and I talk about how that is the best time to hunt. Don't push a deer much before the rut, and, and to me it is very important, but that won't work with 100% of the bugs. If, if one of these bugs that is totally nocturnal, even during the rut, has a very large, thick sanctuary with only small trees, something you can't put a stand in, and he moves into it before daylight and removes there into after dark throughout the hunting season, he will be virtually impossible to kill using conventional ambush tactics. This is a very rare creature, guys. This is what I call an unkillable buck. Now, I personally have not seen this total nocturnal trait in a buck that is not at least six and a half years old, and as I just said, you know, that's what I consider the older age class. And and guys, as you probably know, most bucks in the hunted area do not live to be this old. They don't live that long, so I think this is the reason there are so few truly nocturnal bucks. Now I don't mean to indicate here that all older age class bucks are totally nocturnal. However, from the rare look I've had in these creatures it appears to me that those who do have this trait are in the older age slice. I've I've killed some plenty of older age slice bucks and I know they weren't nocturnal but I'm just saying that the ones that I know for sure were totally nocturnal were in that age group what I would call the older age group. Now considering what I've said so far I'm sure that a lot of you are wondering if it is possible to kill a totally nocturnal buck. I feel there is a way I could probably kill the beast, uh, and that's what I named the, the deer I'm hunting this year. And I think, Jacob, don't you have a picture of him up on your website or somewhere?
0: Yes. By the time people are listening to this episode, by about 10 a.m. Uh, on Monday uh this photo of the beast will be on the social media so it's a it's a monster drop time deer from uh eastern tennessee and uh, i know Bobby, that's gonna me a lot of our topic for today because this is the most recent uh you know unkillable buck that you've that you've kind of called um in really recent years so it's gonna be a huge topic for what we're gonna be talking about today
3: well i feel there's a way i could probably kill him and most other nocturnal bucks if baiting was allowed in my home state of tennessee and if I chose to hunt that way. This is because I'm not sure that any buck is totally nocturnal all the way through the winter. Sometimes hunger may cause an otherwise nocturnal buck to make a mistake and move during daylight uh, later in the winter. So I believe if I lived in a state where baiting was allowed I could probably place a pile of corn just outside a nocturnal buck sanctuary, and possibly get a shot at him on some bitter cold winter evening when hunger drives him from his bed a little earlier than normal. But I just tell you, even if, even when I hunted in a state where baiting was illegal, I personally did not choose to hunt this way. Uh, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it if it is allowed where you hunt. Uh, to my listening audience and you fellas, I realize it's much easier and less time-consuming to shoot deer over bait. And for some, it might be the only practical means of doing so. But I will say that I feel sorry for hunters who do much of their hunting in this manner. I believe individuals who shoot deer over bait are denying themselves the most enjoyable and satisfying part of the experience. You know, we humans are hunter gatherers by nature. That is an inherent trait in all of us that we crave. And the hunting part of the equation is getting out in the woods and interpreting buck sign and studying the terrain and figuring out how to intercept the buck's travel pattern. Now, that's the hunting part of the experience. I do not know how much of that is required or how much people would have to know about whitetail deer and their habits to shoot them over bait. Uh, and, and most hunters understand this. I'm not saying anything that, that is going to offend anybody. They realize that. None of the information I put forth in the podcast would be beneficial to those who shoot deer over bait, other than possibly just for entertainment and curiosity. Knowledge about deer and their habits and how to hunt them would not be required for those guys who shoot deer 100%, shoot all of their deer over bait. I understand there are certain states and certain situations where, where you know, it. it it would be only practical means of doing so. But people who shoot deer over bait, really they're participating in the shooting part only. And I believe the hunting part is the most satisfying portion of the experience. Uh, that's my personal feelings. My advice to someone is, who really wants to enjoy the hunting experience is to get off the food plots and get off the corn piles and get back in the woods. I believe in people need to spend more time back in the woods whether it is to hunt or hike or for whatever reason. That's just my personal opinion. I'm not saying there's one single thing negative about those who choose to shoot dirt over bait where it's allowed. I just believe they could enjoy the experience more if they went about it differently. Now other than baiting, I believe there is another way I could kill a nocturnal buck. I could possibly shoot such a buck by force movement. Since I know where the beast's sanctuary is and the general area where he is bedded most of the time, I believe I could ask someone to walk through there and possibly push the buck out to me. However, I personally have no desire to kill him in this manner, fellas. It's my feeling that his sanctuary is his home, and as it is with our homes, that is as far as he can go. When he makes it there, in my opinion, he should be safe. Now, I like hunting tree dogs. However, I personally consider it unsportsmanlike to twist a squirrel out of a den tree or to smoke or chop a coon out of his den. It is my feelings that when a squirrel or a coon wins the race and beats my dog to his den, he's home. He has won the race, and because of that, I feel like he deserves to live. You know, if an individual had an issue with me... I would not allow him to come into my home and address things there. I guess most of my listening audience feel the same way. I, I just feel like it, I'd be very violated if he did so. My home is as far as he can go, and I look at it the same way with wildlife. I want to kill a buck because he makes a mistake and I capitalize on it. I need to know if my instincts are good enough to get the job done. I want to kill... I want to kill him by outsmarting him. Most human predators are not required to kill game anymore to, survival, to survive, fellas. Of course, we all enjoy the organic free-range and venison that we harvest, but it's not usually necessary to live. It is the challenge that gets us out of bed on them cold winter mornings, and we should not diminish the experience by making the challenge easier. I think it's important that we meet challenges we come across in life head on. Now, again, I'm not saying anything negative about those who choose to bait deer where legal or those who drive deer. We all have standards and restrictions that we place on ourselves, and we live by this. This is the reason myself and uh, a lot of my listeners, I'm sure, and a lot of other hunters, they choose to bow hunt during firearm season. But even though we choose to hunt in this manner, we have no right to push our self-imposed limitations on others. What we consider fair chase and the restrictions we place on ourselves are personal decisions. But even though, guys, this is the case, I don't see anything wrong with those who have lived it, giving suggestions that might help others to enjoy their activity more than they do now. It is not just my goal to help hunters become more successful at harvesting trophy deer, fellas. It is also my desire to help those who hunt to enjoy the chase and and the fruits of success more in the process. You know, guys, on a material level there's there's two things to achieve in life. The first one is to get what we want and after that is to enjoy it. It is only those who Feel like they have earned what they have. Who truly realize the second part of the equation, guys? Before I move on, I, I want to get a little feedback from you all on what what I've said so far. I know it's just getting in the introduction to buck a little bit the unkillable buck.
0: Yeah, I think it's an interesting topic because you've heard, well, especially if you're on social media, anybody out there, you know, you see guys all the time. They're like, oh man, I've got this nocturnal buck. I got this buck. Like I don't know what what I can do to kill him. And in my experience, Bobby, and you can, maybe can talk about this. You have a lot of guys that might think a buck's unkillable, but they never decide to move towards where that deer is coming from. Maybe they're catching it at, you know, seven, eight o'clock at night on their trail camera, but they're not trying to move closer and use that woodsmanship to get closer to potentially where that buck is spending more of his daylight time uh, to catch him, you know, during daylight hours. Uh, So do you feel like there's opportunities for people that, might think that a buck's unkillable without truly knowing what it might take to make a buck unkillable?
3: Well, I want to get – what's coming up next year, I want to get pretty in-depth into the beast and uh, his home range is uh, how much acreage that uh, is in his core area and his sanctuary and how many cameras I've got out. I believe that most of the time that – listen, and I'll get into all this, but – if you're not getting nighttime pictures of a buck and quite a few nighttime pictures, you're out of range of him. Uh, like I want to talk about in a minute, you're set up too far. You're not set up close enough to the buck. I'm right on top of this buck's sanctuary and bedding areas, and I've got eight cameras out. It's going to take It'd take a lot of cameras. Most people that think they're after unkillable buck probably do are not getting enough information to know it's going to take a lot of cameras and you're going to have to really know that buck and and where he's moving and if you're not getting nighttime pictures of that buck uh, at least uh, once a week or something then you're just not you're just not close enough on him and not set up right on him to kill him or to see him or get pictures of him daylight daylight that's exactly right that's kind of what this The next section, and really the whole podcast is about, is knowing how you would know if he was actually truly a non-killable buck, or if you just are not set up correctly. A lot of people don't see their target deer. They might get only one or two pictures of him in the fall. Well, he may move to another home range, or he may be, his core area at that time of year may change. You may have seen him in the fall close to a food plot or something, but during the rut, he's set up another core area that's in another place, and you hadn't moved accordingly, you hadn't, you, you don't know that, and you're sitting in the same place you did, and you've got maybe one or two pictures of them through the winter. Or you, maybe you just seen him once and hadn't got any pictures. Cameras are the key, and I'm going to talk about that too. I'm going to cover most of these things actually coming up here in just a little bit.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, one other thing that I think uh, – I know you'll probably talk about this a little bit later in the episode, but it's like – I think I said a lot of it comes down to – you know how much property do you have to work with too in a situation? Because I feel like a guy that has a hundred acres is going to be a totally different situation versus a guy that's got ten thousand acres. Um, you know, as in, you know, is his buck truly you know unkillable based off the size of property that I have to work with?
3: That's that's true. Guys, uh, I, I, I often lose track of this. I think like in Ohio and different places, uh, probably Illinois to some degree that. Well, there's a lot of landowners, a lot of people, and a lot of landowners, a lot of small tracts of land. I lose sight of how hard it is to pattern a particular buck like I'm going to talk about because here in Tennessee and in the rural area I live in, a lot of the people may own several hundred or a thousand acres, and there's hardly, for the Midwest, is probably, I'm guessing here, but it's probably 80, 85 percent. Farmland where I live is 80 or 85 percent woods, and the reason is it's steep and rough, and it's just not uh, conductive for tillable. You just can't you can't you can't put crops on the side of a hill; it wash it all wash away. But in every state, there's still managed areas. I know that they're getting more and more pressure, but in every state, there are some managed areas, and I always look for the largest ones and. And uh, big buck's where you find them. You might find them right by the road, and then again, you might find them back a good ways. But on these managed areas, you've got enough land to work with if that deer is primarily staying on them. Now, I know that the deer lead, most managed areas, a big part of them are just not good land for tillable. They're, they're, they're rolling hills and more rough terrain. And I know in the winter, I believe they move into the those woods and rut and those and and that, but now I believe in the summer months they do tend to leave the woods and go out to the farm crops and uh, live in the cornfields and live in the private lands a lot more. And then in the winter, when they pick their crops and the vegetation is leaving, and when they start picking them, I believe a lot of these bucks do move back in the woods. But yeah, you're right. A lot of people just do not have enough land or live in an area in a state that's conductive to where they would have a bigger bigger piece of ground to hunt look some situations i mean the deer's area even though it is small land owners a lot of them the deer's core area is on somebody's land you know it might happen to be on yours it might a particular bucks might happen to be on the piece of ground you can actually hunt or at least part of it you know but that's a good point. That's a real
0: good point. And, Bobby, just before you move on, what you, you there's a certain quote that you've said, and I've actually had, you said it on, you've said it literally on every episode we've ever had you on, but I just want to mention it for the listeners, because uh, I had uh, the listener I interviewed today, uh, Mark Smith. He, he said this quote for, that you've said many a times, which is, you know, the big bucks are where you find them. And, again, that could be 50 yards off the road, or that could be three miles back from the access point if you're on public land. Uh, and that's a that's a really... Uh, it, it's a it's a quote that I think everybody needs to take to heart. With you know, there's never a a always with whitetails. You know, that big buck could be right under your nose, or he could be at the farthest point from where you can park your truck and, and walk in from. So that's a really good point. Again, uh, like you said, big bucks are where you find them. So I'll let you kind of keep on going.
3: That's exactly right. I had an almond spill They call me quite often. They get, I guess they read a lot and they read a lot of the stuff. I had one call me the other day he's going to. Kansas and, and wanted to know where he should what part of the manager he should start his scouting on and I said comb it all and look for the big sign uh, the big sign may be right by road or by a private ground or it may be right in the heart of the place but when you find a big sign you got to try to connect all the dots of the sign and, and then and then you got to find the, the funnels inside that you know, inside that area where the buck sign is, the tightest funnel is inside there, so it don't matter if it's, you know, I've killed some of my best deer uh, right beside some of the major highways in the Midwest, you know, then I've killed some of them as far back as I could reasonably get, you know, I killed one of them a mile and a half back, that was a rough job getting that buck out, he, he field dressed 275, so there, where you, that's exactly right, do not, do not overlook, uh, matter of fact, I've believe there are some stretches of highway that don't have a good place to pull off and uh, some long stretches of highway that don't have a good place to pull off on and the deer feel safer by the highway than they do back in the woods where they might be logging roads or excess roads or a lot of hunters starting to go back further now and, and deer may find it it's sometimes safer right beside a highway i think gene Wendell told me a story one time of a he, his buddy of his was hunting beside a highway and matter of fact he might have been hunting between the interstate there's a pretty good patch of wood between the interstate and his wife would let him off <laughs> and and he would hunt it and then after dark she'd come by and stop at a certain place and pick him up and and another car pulled up and stopped and opened the door and he thought well you know my wife my have been made she must have sent someone here to get me he jumped in he'd going down the road and he looked over at her, and she looked over at him, and said, "Who are you?" <laughs> I, said, I thought, she, well, No, know my husband's hunting back there. I was picking him up." So <laughs> there's a lot of people that I think there's a lot of people that hunt like that. Really, more than you'd realize. But that was just an interesting story. I don't remember the details, so I probably shouldn't have brought it up. All right, fellas, let's. Uh, I think it'd be interesting now if we if we get a little deeper into the traits of the beast and. And by doing so I think we can get a rare glimpse into a buck that I believe is unkillable at this time in his life. This deer's core area consists of about 125 acres. Now this land is a mixture of mostly hardwood, open hardwoods and big hardwood and some pines. And there's also a, a thick 20 acre clear cut on this property. It's it's uh, pretty well centered in the area I think is core area. Now this clear cut, I think, is primary sanctuary during the pre-rut and the rut. Now I'm pretty well locked into that from what I've seen of all the cameras I've had out. Uh, you you won't always know that. And and a buck may have a bigger, I will say that a buck might have a bigger uh, core area than this, but as they tend to get older, then the core area shrinks. So I, I think that that's from, from my cameras and spread them out real well. I had a, probably uh, 15 cameras out this year in this area, but I, I concentrated eight of them to what I thought was in this core area, and I had the others further out just to see if I was missing something, and they really didn't didn't get any pictures, so I had it I had it pretty well figured out. And during this, inside this 125-acre core area, other than that 20-acre clear there's also uh, a few smaller p- patches of thick briars that's about all five to seven acres and they're scattered throughout that core area too. Now he's moved his core area, this buck has moved his core area slightly from where it was four years ago, but he's definitely in the same home range that he's always been as far as I've ever known. The property where he lives now is, and where I hunt, is is lightly hunted. There's two or three people that hunt it and the surrounding properties are fairly heavy, heavily hunted and And one of the surrounding properties, very close to where he's living, actually, is uh, plants a lot of winter wheat later in the year. And a lot of the deer go out to that. But from one of my cameras, this deer hadn't. And I've heard several shots. But so far, none of them has been this deer. They hadn't seen him. Now, five years ago, I hunted the area where the beast lived on a regular basis. And I wasn't interested in killing him. I saw him several times that year. And on one of these occasions, guys, my my son, A.J., he missed the buck while I was filming him. And actually, it was my fault. I, I caught out the wrong distance, and, and he shot just under his chest. And then the next year, I saw him a couple of times, but shortly thereafter, I got involved in hunting another piece of property. And since then, I have not spent much time in the location until this year. Now, back four years ago, There wasn't anything overly impressive about the Buck's 8-point rack, other than the fact that he had a long brow tine on his left side that curved over his head, and that brow tine had an additional fork coming off the back of its base. This, along with a couple of other features, are the identifying characteristics that he still has today. But I'll tell you, now that he's older, he is formed about a seven, six or seven inch drop tine on his right side and I think that people can view the picture of this buck. Now this year I moved back into that area and I was really surprised to get the same buck's picture that I knew five years ago as a long brow tine buck. I didn't think he'd still be alive four years later, but he has is and he's made it to to the age of nine and a half years old in an area that receives uh, some hunting pressure and to me this in and of itself indicates that he is unkillable using legal means. Now from evaluating the size of his track and I've looked at it in the straights and a few other soft spots there, I believe the buck is huge physically. He has a really large track and this is the reason I named him the beast and i do not think that there's any bucks large enough to challenge him in this area he has no indications of being in a fight he has he hasn't got any gore marks on his body and he has no bro- broken tines and this is unusual for a mature buck after the rut and even though he's still actively involved in the rut it does not appear to me that he has to compete with other bucks for the right to breed i just haven't seen any indication of him being in the fight, and I know there is a big ten-point in the area. i mean, a real hoss. I had him seven yards of me this year, come right by me. But when I zero in on one particular buck, I'm I'm really not interested in shooting another deer. But now that I know there at least a, I know at least there's one big ten-point and a couple of other really impressive bucks in the area. But I don't think the beast is. I don't think none of them challenges him or fights with him. Now, I decided to target this deer this year mainly because of his age, but also because of his body size and the fact that he's got a drop time. Now, I believe the buck is unkillable this year. He was not in the past, at least not when he was 4 and a half and 5 five and a half years old, and he may not be next year. However... At this time, I believe this buck is unkillable using fire chase tactics. Now this season, I hunted him for 40 days in a 50-day stretch of time. I normally don't keep up with it, but I I, I did fairly good this year, and I do, I do this more as I get older. And I had eight cameras, like I said, set up for him, and I had the eight cameras out for 50 days. And I also had three, let's see. I had five tree stands that were set up tight on him in his core area and on the edge of his sanctuary, and my cameras were hunting him in the same locations where I had the five tree stand. I had the cameras because, of, you know, the, that's where I expected to shoot him or get his picture. That was the best locations they could be. Now one camera is on his major strafe, fellas, and this is where I did most of my hunt. The strafe is on a habitat edge that tightens down movement in a large funnel is how I've got that set up. And I also had three additional cameras in the area which I did not have a tree stand associated with them. I would have hung one quickly, of course, guys, if I'd have started getting his picture there. Now, the picture that I sent to you, Jacob, that picture I texted you, is it's on his major straight. Now, a lot of times, Guys, a major strape ends up being a mock strape that I make, but that was not the case. That was not the case. When I moved back into this area and done my initial scout, and I found this strape from the year before, and I could tell by the limb, guys, and the drown that it had some major work to it, and there was a strape line associated with it. But this particular strape received more activity on it and was worked harder than any of the others on that strape line. Uh, now guys I don't normally hunt uh, I, and I know you guys realize this I hunt tight funnels I don't normally hunt all the rut long a strafe normally I move that tight funnel once the bucks get to going good but this strafe I kept getting pictures of this buck and I got them regularly on the strafe and I felt like and I still feel like that that would have been the spot to kill the beast uh, one day he was there about 30 minutes before daylight, but that was the closest he come the whole year from moving it close to daylight. Now, let me, uh, Jacob, Andrew, and guys, let me tell you this. When I say this drape is in a, a large funnel that's tightened down by, by habitat break, I'm sure you all and some of my listeners might be curious about that. About Fifty yards from where the stripe was is a big drainage going off the side of a mountain there, and then on the other side, it gets into some open country. So there's about a fifty-yard stretch there that is uh, a funnel. It's it's too wide. It's wider than I would hunt. I, if I had to hunt, I took a chainsaw and got permission. I'd knock down a tree or two. But this stripe and this stripe line was right around where some clear cut where one of those actually were one of those thick briar patches I talked about, about a five acre briar, briar, briar patch joins the woods that makes an ecotone or a habitat break, and that strape was right along the edge of them. So when I say that this strape is on a habitat break that narrows down movement on a wider funnel, that's what I'm talking about, just in case you're interested. You guys understand what I'm picturing here? Okay. Well, that was his. That was his major, that was his major scrape and his major point of activity. And I got more pictures of him there than in any of the. They still three type funnels there that I had stands and cameras up, but I got more pictures of him and more activity, right there, during the 50 days that I hunt him. I got 11 pictures of him, and seven of the 11 were on this scrape, guys. Now all 11 of these pictures were at night, and if you think about it, fellas, when you consider that I had eight cameras out in strategic locations for 50 days, eight cameras for 50 days in the best locations I could find, you might could say that I hunted the deer for 400 days. Or you could say that eight individuals hunted him for 50 days during the pre-rut and throughout the rut and not once did I see the beast in daylight and neither did any of my cameras see him in daylight hours. While I was patiently waiting on it to happen I do not believe this buck made one mistake. He did not allow the urges and excitements of the breeding season to put him in jeopardy by moving in daylight. This buck here, he exercised extreme restraint all the way through the pre-rut and the rut. And even though I had pretty well decided that he was nocturnal by the first week of the rut. I continued to hunt him and I kept hoping that I was not right in my thought that he was moving only at night. But however, fellas, now that the rut is over, I know this was the case. And really it's not that surprising to me considering the buck's nine and a half years old. And What is surprising is really that he's lived that long. (coughs) I'll just tell you, I. I have tunnel vision when I hunt a particular buck, and this one was no exception. I, I I could have hunted bigger bucks in that area that had that had nicer racks than the beast. As you see from looking at his rack, he's not got that many points, and he don't score that that good. But I really wanted the challenge of hunting him, and I did not want to divide my focus between two bucks either. When I decide to hunt a particular buck. And I start thinking about the challenge. I do not need anything distracting me to kill a specific buck, and particularly to kill a specific older-aged slice buck on purpose is a very complex ordeal. The thoughts of other bucks needs to be pushed to the back of your mind, so you can stay focused and not miss anything that might come up significant. And the, I'll just tell you, the way I went about hunting this buck is no different than what I've done in the past. I, use, I start by gathering information on a particular buck. I, I find and examine and connect all of his signs as much as possible. And then this information allows me to work out his travel patterns. And then next I place as many cameras as needed and as practical on his travel corridors. And then finally, I try to understand what the information I'm getting is telling me about his character and movements. So that's, that's, that's just in a nutshell kind of how I went about this buck and a lot, of, a lot of other material bucks that I find and I decide to target. And, you know, I, get, I tell you guys, the information is useless if you obtain it a week or two after the event takes place. If things are going strong, I check trail cameras at least every two or three days. And guys, sometimes I check them daily. I do this in the middle of the day, of course, in a non-invasive way. and I, I, a non-invasive, I, I guess there's a lot of ways I can tell you I do that. One one way is I wear a product called a Limitrack that's on my shoes, and I don't care what deer or coyote or old doe or whatever walks through there, she'll never smell where you walked in there. And if... If I didn't have that option, I'd probably have to use regular cameras. I'll just tell you, and and also by non-invasive, I mean this too, guys. I'll come off a road or somewhere where deer expects, and maybe occasionally sees a human, maybe driving a, a logging road with a four wheeler or something, and I'll go straight to the the camera where my stand site is. I won't. I'll go to it parallel I will not walk up and, out, and I won't go from there to the next camera on the deer's travel corridor on the trail I'll come back out go down a ways then back in I don't want a deer to think that I'm following or tracking him I mean with the lemon tracks really they don't smell me but there's always that outside chance I might be brushing against something or or my pants or clothes might not have been as clean as I wanted so I don't want to travel when I'm scouting a deer up and down his corridor. I want to pop in, go 90 degrees to it, check it, then come back out to a place that they're more used to human, then go on down and back in. So that's what I mean by non-invasive ways that I, I do that, and I do it in the middle of the day of course. Now, I'm hunting, I'm trying to hunt all day. My stand, don't misunderstand me, my stand is close. Where I'm checking these cameras. It ain't like I'm taking off two or three hours. Like this deer here, I was, I was hunting basically on 125 acres, and I had eight cameras. Well, I could check them eight cameras as tight as they were in that area. I could check them in an hour and be back at my stand. So I'm not saying not to sit in your stand a lot of hours, but I am saying that sometimes gathering information is just as important as sitting there all day, especially if you're not getting daylight pictures or a lot of pictures, and you really want to know what's going on. I wanted to know if that buck had locked up with a doe and he didn't where, and I wanted to know it within a day or two when he done it. So the only option I have, that unless you know, you can afford secular cameras, and right now I, I I ain't got it. I ain't figured out how to get out of the poorhouse yet, guys. So. I'm still using conventional cameras, Them's a little bit pricey on them Segler cameras, I think. But just remember that that all bucks have individual personalities and characters just as much as dogs and cats and even humans, and this all must be sorted out to know when and where to intercept a buck, especially when you're hunting a particular buck. If you don't, guys, you're just relying on luck, and it's been my observation that lady is not a reliable means of killing deer because she's often just as evasive as the buck that you're hunting.
0: Houndstooth Game Call's Dixie Hen's Slate was just voted the overall best turkey call by Field and Stream Outdoors, and trust me, it's super easy to run and be extremely dynamic when you're in the turkey woods. Now, we've mentioned a couple of these calls in the past, like the Spur Master and the Success Call in a past episode with both Gary Vines and Lyle Gilbert of Houndstooth Game Calls, and it was funny enough, y'all actually bought every Spur Master Call and Success Call they had. Now pay attention to their website. They're going to have some more come up in stock in the next few days. So when they come available, make sure you get one if you did not purchase one before they sold out last time. Both the Spur Master and the Success Call are fantastic for hunting high pressure turkeys, whether you're on a hunting club where you have a lot of other members hunting those same turkeys or if you're on public land. Again, both of those calls will make you sound a little bit different from everybody else and be a lot more subtle in your calling technique and be able to really help close those distance with those gobblers. So if you want to give Hounds Houndstooth Game Calls a try, go to HoundstoothGameCalls.com use the promo code SOP24 again promo code SOP24 for 15% off houndtoothgamecalls.com
1: what was it that you said that you wear on your shoes uh when you're going in it's a product called Elimitrax
3: uh, a friend of mine named Scott Whitlock developed it years ago and how I learned about it actually was at an ATA show when I was writing a lot for different outdoor magazines and I went to a ATA show and I looked in my bag and that they put them little pamphlets in there, you know, in that bag they give you out there. And one of them was on tracks and it says totally eliminate human odor. The product is no longer being sold. I think you might can still find it on a maybe on Amazon. They're about sold out of it. <coughs> Scott Scott's a good friend of mine. We're we're in touch now. We lost. Contact for a while, but we're back in touch. It took him a long time to ever find a chemical lab that could produce a plastic or a rubber that has no odor. Guys, when you when you buy before you buy your hunting boots, open that box and smell those shoes. Uh, one of the most popular brands back in the 70s and the 80s when I done a lot of my trophy hunting. If you you could open the box and just take a whip of them and they were so strong and and i could not i until i run into this guy in the, the lima tracks i could not beat a deer's nose i'd have to go way around and try to come in a way that the deer wasn't crossing my track and still it was difficult guys i even went as far of course i did a little hunting of tree dogs like i said i went as far as to take and skin coons out and strap the coon hides, carry them with me. And before, when I got in there close to where I was going to be hunting, I used to take those coon hides and pull over my boots and tie them up. I went to extremes. I used to drag a skunk behind me. Gosh, you, mind, you guys I'll try that. I went to extreme to try to hide my tracks back before I found this product. But there's no use worrying about this whatsoever. When I worked at the prison, we took the the tracking dogs, we had bloodhounds, and I wanted to try this, and I laid a scent trail, and they turned them dogs loose within two minutes of me laying that trail, and they had no idea where I'd been. And guys, you got to use practical sense. You can't throw them in the back of your truck and get them sort with chainsaw, gas, and oil, and different stuff. I, I keep them in a, a container that's clean and with a lid on it, and... But you can put these on your shoes, and you can go down. I've, me and a lot of my hunting buddies that's tried it over the years that's got some of them, you can go down a deer trail, just walk right down the trail and climb your tree. And the oldest doe or buck in the woods, a uh, doe, of course, is a lot more chill to catch you before a buck, will. they can walk right down that trail, and they'll never drop their nose. No sign of human scent whatsoever. What it is, it's an overshoe. Uh, it, it buckles To the bottom of your foot you put your shoe on and then you step on this and it comes up on the sides far enough to cover your soles and up up about halfway up most shoes. And then it's got two straps that go across the top of your shoe and you just simply buckle that on your shoe. And you walk in with it and then when you get to the base of your tree because they're a little bit hard and, and slick they do have tread on them but because they're a little hard and slick I take them off and leave them. At the base of my tree and it it's an odorless plastic it's it's like a hard rubber and and a guy named scott whitlock from missouri come up with this and uh it's probably the greatest asset to my hunt has been over the years you know it's always said if you if you want to kill a deer buck you need to do it the first time or two you hunt the stand and I agree with that. The more often you hunt the stand, the more deer becomes aware of your presence that you're hunting there and particularly older bucks. Not necessarily because you bust them in the stand, I mean it could be that too, but it's because they come through at night and they smell your scent trail and smell where you walked in and smell particularly right there around your stand because that's where you're spending most of your time when you're getting ready to climb up and getting in the stand and getting out of your stand and of course they know your scent trail ends there but because they come through at nine become aware that there's a human predator there they they become very weary of that spot but this product here just eliminates that you can strap this overshoe onto the bottom of your boot and walk down the biggest deer trail in the woods straight to your tree and up and I'm telling you, the oldest doe in the herd can come through and she'll never drop her head or I've had coyotes come through and they never smell a bit of trace of where you was at there. Sadly, this product's no longer on the market. Scott first come out with it, I, I was working to the prison and and I uh, had the bloodhounds out there I was wanting to try to track out and they occasionally like to work the dogs, tracking people, so I put this product on and I actually... they. I hadn't gone far. He hadn't given me more, as much time as I wanted. I hadn't got a hundred yards and he started turning the bloodhounds loose, but you know they never had a one able to track me never had an idea of where I went. So it was an amazing product and I knew right then it was something special and it, it's he had several labs try to come up with a odorless plastic uh, rubber boots or leather boots or just about any material sheds microscopic products uh, particles of that material and same way of our rubber boots and you might think well rubber boots hide human sin and and so what if they if they shed those particles well that's what that's what the deer is smelling I mean if you got rubber boots on I know everybody's been aware that even with rubber boots on they've had deer to smell where they walked in and what they're smelling is that chemical that that that's made up of and it's foreign it's foreign to deer and And not only that, if a deer comes through the woods and it smells a human being, along inside that smell of that human body odor is also the products he has on him and around him. And and all humans wear rubber shoes, and I'm sure they smell similar. So deer constantly smelling humans, and along with their rubber boots, that rubber boot smell actually becomes human smell to the deer, it's the same thing to them. when they walk through the woods and smell that track, that trail. They know a human's past is the issue with that. And when I buy a pair of rubber boots, a, a, I always open that box and smell it. The longer that boot is in a box and enclosed like that, the more sin it builds up if it has a lot of odor. And some of them are a lot worse than others. And it's been my experience way back there. If you Take the ones that do smell strong in a box, and you try to hunt it in them, you're gonna get smelled worse by deer. So that's that's what the Limitrax is, and that's how it benefits hunters.
0: I originally, when you had mentioned it, was thinking it was some kind of spray, but it's an actual uh, it's, it's an actual really uh, garment you know cover that goes over your boot that you know you kind of put over the sole of your boot uh for you know walking in and, and walking out uh so I, I, again i appreciate you kind of explaining that for us and kind of giving the listeners an idea of kind of what that is i'm sure we'll probably have some listeners write in that may be familiar with that product from back when it was on the market
3: the issue of it scott scott felt like he needed not only the overshoe but leggings and they went up to your belt it was like kind of uh waiters they went up to your belt there was lighter weight than waiters and you hook them on your belt but they was a little bit clumsome and noisy, and, and that made the price up too some. So that may be why it didn't really take off because it's one of the best products on the market. But I found from experimenting that just the overshoes done the trick and was all I needed to use. So
0: we've actually we did an episode not long ago with a uh, uh, it was a canine handler and a he uh, was a professor up at I forgot what school up in Montana. Uh, and we talked a lot about Gramsons and it, it is super interesting. Again, you know, those different, the molecules and everything and how that all plays a factor uh, in what a deer is actually smelling, In a in a dog too. It's not just the human odor, it's everything else that they're, they're keying in on. So, um and you're all, yeah. you're, you're spot on there about all that.
3: Yeah, it is. And it's so important to, to eliminate that as much as possible. And if, if you can't, then, then it is best that you get that buck in a time or two in there and even if you can you still need to get him in your first few seconds you just do not need to wire a particular stand out not just because of that but because the longer you hunt there the more deer is going to catch you in your stand and smey and just other things so that's why it's good to have several stands set up on the same buck uh, well let's move on here fellas I, I was talking about as you should be aware of it now through his sign and photographs, so I gathered a lot of information about the beast this season. And I'll tell you, this buck has two interesting characteristics that I have noticed in some other nocturnal bucks. Now, the first trait I want to talk about, that I've only seen in three other bucks in all of my years of trophy hunt. And that is the buck, the beast, he only tends to dough and heat at night. On two occasions, I got photographs of him with a doe in heat, and it was obvious the doe was in heat during that time of year. There's no mature buck going to be within a few feet of a doe unless she's in heat, unless she's running wide open. So it was obvious from, I put my camera to take as many photographs as deer are in front of it because I want all that information. If a doe comes through, I don't want it to have a lapse of, 30 seconds or a minute, and Jacob, you don't understand that. Uh, if a doe comes through, I want to know if there's a buck right with her. And if she ain't running, if she's relaxed and her tarsal glands are black, and I get a picture of a buck pretty close there too, I, that tells me a lot. I know to get in there and wear that particular place out. But I was, let me get back on subject here. On the two occasions, I got photographs of him with a doe that was obviously in heat I believed at that time that I might have a chance to kill him because usually that's their Achilles heel, but my hopes soon diminished. On one of those occasions, I got pictures of him going into his sanctuary well before daylight alone after getting his picture with a doe the night before. And on the other occasion, I know I saw the doe by herself. I could identify her, and I knew the doe, and i seen her around his major strafe a lot when I was hunting it. She had some hair tufted up on her back. And I seen her by herself the next day after getting a picture of him tending her the night before. So when he finds a doe and heat he'll tend her during the night. But well before daylight, he leaves her and returns to his security cover. Then after dark, he'll again leave his sanctuary and go look for her another doe and heat. Now, guys, if a buck does not have this characteristic, he cannot be totally nocturnal. There is no way in the world a buck can stay with a a doe while she's coming in, and they'll stay with him sometimes 24 hours before they're in, and, and while she's coming in and while she's in heat and not expose himself to daylight because I've never known of a doe to be totally nocturnal. So I've seen this characteristic in two other nocturnal bucks, And in one, that ended up moving a couple of times during daylight while he was cruising for doze and heat. He was in between those. But the second time he made that mistake, it didn't work out well for him, guys. Uh, I want to tell you there's another rare characteristic that I noticed about the beast. The first week of October, I placed a trail camera monitoring his major and I didn't explain where that was laid out and how I found it. And I got a total of seven pictures of him on that straight during the night. Now, I got more than that, but I'm talking about seven different occasions. And five of these photographs were taken during the late pre-rut, and a couple more was later on in the rut, when I'm sure he was between those. Now, what's interesting about this is, He always approached the straight from the same direction and he always left in the same direction. Now guys, this is not normal whitetail behavior. In most situations where a buck has a point of interest, he'll sometimes approach it from different directions. But this is not the case with the beast. And Early on this characteristic revealed to me that his moves are very calculated. He is not haphazardly running around in the woods looking for does and heat and then decides to go by and work his straight from wherever from wherever he happens to be at the time. This behavior in a take, indicates to me that he not only uses restraining when he moves, that is at night, but also in the direction he moves in. During the time that I was hunting this buck, four other bucks come to that straight, on more than one occasion. And all of these bucks, even one that was mature, which is just a giant eight point, they approached the straight from different directions on some of the times that they come in. And there was a three and a half year old 10 point, and I'm really wanting to see him here in a couple of more years. He came into the straight from a different direction each of the five times he visited it. And I've seen him at other locations as well. I've seen that buck and got pictures of him everywhere. As a side note, I'd say, I want to say this, I believe the three-and-a-half-year-old bucks are the most energetic breeders in the herd from what I've seen. And they probably do 80% of the breeding. Uh, there ain't nothing to stop a buck at age if he, when he gets to going. And I've seen him running everywhere looking for does and we've seen him a couple of times with does. Now I'll tell you there's one other thing I noticed about the beast that that was interesting and I'm not sure that this is the case with all deer up around his age but it may be. Uh, even though he started his rutting activity as early as did a lot of bucks in the area, he stopped moving around and looking for those and tending those about a week before the other mature bucks did. And I'm just speculating here but I think this is probably because his breeding urge may be not as strong as it was when he was younger, and this is more than likely a result of lowering testosterone levels and possibly declining stamina at his age. He was probably getting pretty wore out. I, but to be honest with you, he never lost as much weight as uh, that other mature buck in the area. So I, to end up my discussion, fellas, about the beast or the unkillable buck, we might say, I think it would be good to entertain the question, are there ways that the average hunter can determine if a buck is totally nocturnal and unkillable? Now, I believe this would be difficult for most hunters. It takes a lot of hunting time and a lot of information gathering to understand individual characteristics of bucks. Most hunters may not be able to or choose to dedicate this much time and energy to whitetail. Fellas, in the last 50 years, I've dedicated a lot of time and energy to these animals. It would make it difficult if somebody had, say, hunted a 30, even a 30 as much as me, to understand certain uh, traits of particular bucks or specific bucks. And also, most hunters just do not hunt individual bucks. I believe the majority of trophy hunters hunt a certain age group or a certain size buck, and this is understandable but it's not the way I hunt. I pattern a particular buck, guys, and often I study him for years. And because of this, I learn a lot about the behavior of individual deer that other hunters may not be able to understand. Also, to appreciate movement patterns of bucks, it's really vital that a hunter gather a lot of information. I do not think any hunter, no matter how many hours he hunts, can determine with certainty that a buck is nocturnal simply by hunting him. Trail cameras are the key to understanding deer behavior nowadays. And the best way I have found to determine if a buck is totally nocturnal is by information gathered through trail camera photographs. It was much more difficult and time consuming before trail cameras were introduced to determine behavior traits and movement patterns of bucks. But now that we have trail cameras, Guys, we can gather as much information in a week as it used to take us all season long without them. I used to study deer all season long, and I can can learn as much about a deer now, a particular deer, in a week than I could all season long. But even though this is the case and trail cameras are good, I want to say that trail cameras, their usefulness, to a large degree, is determined by the user's knowledge about when and where to place them, and also about his ability to interpret the information they reveal so it ain't just just having a lot of cameras out there it's being a woodsman when it what it actually boils down to but if you're if you're not seeing your deer or not getting any photographs of him and you, you know there's a buck in there and you're trying to hunt him chances are like i said earlier you're out of range that is to say that you're not set up close enough to his core area that time of year right then when you're wanting to hunt him. And even so guys, no matter how tight you're set up, you cannot expect to get daily or even weekly pictures of any mature buck during the rut. There will be times when he's absent from your camera for various reasons. One of these reasons of course will be when he's holding tight with a doe and heat. However, you should at least be getting pictures of a material buck. And this has been my observation through the years, fellas. At least every five to ten days, if you've got enough cameras out there, and they're set up in the right locations, and, of course, if you've got enough cameras out. So if you've got a lot of cameras out in the area and you're getting regular photo of a buck during the pre-rut and, and also through the rut and all the photo at night, you might start considering the possibility that you're hunting a nocturnal, uh, really a totally nocturnal buck, especially if he's in the older age class. All three of the bucks I knew that were nocturnal were six and a half years old and older. So if you know a buck's in the older age class, and you are getting fairly regular pictures of him, and you're getting the photographs only at night, uh, and none of him, you're not seeing or getting any dress in the daytime with a doe, but you're getting photographs in the night with a doe, you might you might start considering the possibility that you're hunting a nocturnal buck. And, guys, I really think that what I said earlier about that trade, about him approaching a strafe or a, a, going a corridor the same direction every time, I think that's probably another indication that that buck is in the older age slice and you... And could be nocturnal. If other things show that. Um, and my my experience with the beast was a good example of this. During the 50-day period, I hunted him with eight trail cameras. The longest stretch of time he was absent from my camera was nine days. Now, one time five days, one time six days, uh, and all the le- and so nine days was the longest he was absent. So that's quite a few pictures of a fuck of that age class. Of course, that's like I said, I think their core area does get smaller in home range when they get that to be that age. But all of them of the photographs were at night, and I had no daylight sightings of him, and, and this is the number one information that helped me to determine that he was nocturnal, killable. Of course, there's other indications of this. Just the fact that he made it to be nine and a half years old in an area that's hunted is another indication that he's nocturnal. So we might look at another question, what do you do if you determine your hunting buck that is truly nocturnal? Well, fellas, if you want to be successful, you need to put your efforts into controlling the sail, not the wind. My advice is to pick another target. But the problem with this is that you won't know that a buck is unkillable until the end of the rut. As it... As it was with the beast, I kept hoping and waiting on a daylight movement event that it, it just never took place. It took me until the end of the rut to know what a unique animal I was hunting. And this is the difficulty with such a buck. It usually takes information gathered all the way through the rut to know if one is nocturnal, and by then it's usually too late to target another buck. Even so, you might look at it this way. You might say, well, this knowledge will help me uh, to decide to go after another buck next season and not hunt him. And uh, Or you might hunt him hoping that something will change to make him not so nocturnal, but I don't, I'm sure it's not the case 100% of the time, but I would think it would be very unlikely that if, as a buck aged, he become more killable. I just don't think he would. Uh, Well, to end my discussion, I want to say the beast is an extremely unique individual animal among unique animals. He is alive today, guys, and he is alive against all odds. To begin with, the fact that this unique individual was born is against all odds, of course, as it is with all of us. And then when you consider that he made it to be nine and a half years old in a wild environment, while coexisting with human predators is against all odds. You know, life of a rutting buck is a very, it's dangerous enough in and of itself. Many do not make it through the fights and vigors of the rutting season to continue on to the next year. Moreover, when you throw in the fact that human predators have evolved to the ultimate ambush animal, and he was able to evade them for so many years, it's, it was against all odds. I really enjoyed learning from him. Working out the travel patterns of any material or older age slash buck is difficult business, let alone one that's nine and a half years old. Predicting, predicting the behavior of an older aged slash buck is as difficult as it is predicting what a human being might do next. Now you guys think about that. You've lived long enough to understand what I'm saying there. Well, because humans, I've always heard it tell that. A, I've always heard it told that a dog will make a liar out of you quicker than anything. Well, a human will make you liar out of you quicker than that. If you try to bet or say what I want to do, especially you know a kid, especially your kid. <laughs> so I try. I tried hard to kill the beast this year, fellas, and I failed. Even so, I am vastly better off for it than I would be if I had not tried and had succeeded. It was a long season, yet it was interesting, educational, and it was successful as far as the way I look at it. I enjoyed it immensely. Guys, it was time I got back in the swing of things and did some serious trophy hunting. This season is the hardest I've hunted since I lost my son played a terrible accident. It just uh, He was my hunting partner, and I just was not in the mood to do any serious hunting. But this year I hunted like I've hunted in the past. And it's irrelevant to my success whether I killed the beast or not. I hunted him hard and correctly. And guys, I made no major mistakes that cost me a shot at him. I effectively worked out his travel pattern, and I was set up at the right location. I was set up at the location he visited most often, and this is evidence from my trail camera photographs, so the problem was of it was that he visited them at night. His movements were all at night. If this was not the case, guys, I'd have killed him ten times over. Most bucks that I put this much effort into do not fare very well. Uh, a lot, now, a lot of hunters may want to know why and not be able to understand why I called this season successful and I understand that, but at this point I'll have to say I have nothing to prove to myself and I long ago stopped hunting to satisfy others. It is the learning, it is the knowledge that I've trained, and it always has been. So, I want to I I think about this and leave you with this thoughts. We hunters talk a lot about how to hunt, and I, I do too, and on podcasts you've heard, and when to hunt, and we talk a lot about where to hunt. But I think we as hunters should also entertain the question of why we hunt. I am afraid that too many hunters shoot deer because of pressure from society. Now, when I use the word society, guys, I'm talking about the network of family and friends that are around us. A lot of people may be hunting a big deer only to end up shooting something of less quality because of peer pressure. We should never lower our standards because of pressure from others. And you guys know this, As a long season drags zone. Those around us may something, say something such as, have you got a deer yet? You know, so-and-so, he got, he got a big one. Or someone might say, you know, a guy I work with killed two deer. Have you got one yet? We should not let people who do not understand and have no idea what we're trying to do and why we hunt put pressure on us to lower our standards to shoot a deer that we won't be happy with. And, you know, I think this has caused a lot of people to start cheating. I believe a lot of poachers have started down that road because of peer pressure. Yes, guys, I think that we ought to entertain the question of why we hunt. I think it is a significant one. I don't have anything against deer. I don't hunt deer to get them dead by any ways and means available to me. Neither do I hunt for approval from others or for bragging rights. I hunt for the personal challenge, and the bigger the challenge, the better it is for me. Uh, that's just uh, a little bit of something I wanted to say there that I think that hunters ought to put a little thought into. Now, you may be wondering about next season. Uh, will I hunt the beast again next year, hoping that something changes to make him more killable? Uh, I wanted to answer that because I feel like a few people might wonder that. And this question uh It's a question I haven't answered yet. I don't even know if I desire to kill him at this point, guys. I think life is more interesting for me with him out there. It seems to me that, against all odds, this this deer has won the game of life, and he deserves to live until Mother Nature escorts him across the bridge, walked by all flesh, that we're going to all walk someday. Finally, I'd like to say that my bucks are individuals as are all creatures. This is what makes them so fascinating. The unkillable buck is a living, breathing creature of mythical fortunes. He is always lurking somewhere out there just in the twilight out of our reach. There may not be one on the ground that you're hunting Jacob or Mike or or any of us, but nevertheless, just knowing that he is out there is fascinating to us. So that's that's about all I had to say on the unkillable buck. Uh, I think I've answered most of the questions that might come to mind. Jacob, you guys got any other thoughts on it or questions that I might be able to answer?
0: Yeah, we, we've actually got uh, a handful here. I know uh, Michael Pike's got, got quite a few. Uh, but just I've got one question that just came to mind is, after learning what you learned this year about the beast, is there if if you could go back to October first or November first, is there anything you would have done differently, knowing what you know now uh, about you know that buck and his movement?
3: There's nothing about the buck. I want to I want to let nobody push him out to him. Uh, of course, bait ain't legal in Tennessee. I want to kill him that way. If it was, there's nothing I would have done. There's nothing I'd have done different about the beast. Now, I could have killed a. I might have shot that hundred. That was a, a big ten point, 160 class come by me at seven yards. I thought, at that time, I wasn't sure the beast was a, totally nocturnal. I thought he was. I got some pictures of him there at night too. Would I went back? Would I shot that buck and got him out and continued hunting the beast? I might have. I might have done that. I actually, when I seen the buck, I wondered about him. And the next day, it was warm and rainy. And I went and found the deer's that big 10 points core area the next day. I went and found his core area. I put a camera out for next year and and maybe the next. uh, But I think the deer is at least five and a half, maybe six and a half. I went and found him the next day and put a camera out. I I knew it was him just because of the way he was traveling and, and the way the sign was. I found some huge rubs as big as my leg and up real high and this was a really nice bug. Big old material bug. And I went and put my camera out and I found a tight spot. Just so happened there was a tight spot right right where all those big rubs was in the edge of a the thicket. There's a tight spot right there, there's a drainage that made a tight spot. I put that camera out and the next day I got I got that deer, that big ten points picture. He was limping when he come by me and then when I got his picture I could see that part of the skin on his lower leg was peeled off. I don't know what happened there, but it was the same buck. So I got lucky the, the first day I had the camera out, and got his picture. I know where he's at now, and I may look at him next year. may let my son, AJ, shoot him next year. So would I have shot him if I knew that I might have? I'd have, I'd have felt bad about it. I just feel like that if I kill a buck that I ain't targeted, it's just a luck deer. It's just a, but that's okay, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. And then I, I've wondered a time or two what I just set up and hunted another buck and targeted another buck and killed him where I was felt like it was a luck deer. I don't think I would have. Every day that it wasn't real bad conditions, uh, raining or strong winds. I mean, I hunted that buck. I hunted hard, and I learned so much from it. And I just enjoyed getting out again and hunting. Like and I learned a whole lot about that buck, and I feel like I've made some kind of connection just because I hunt him so hard. I don't know if I'll hunt him next year or not. I don't know if he'll still be around at his age, because I pretty well know his age. I know he was three and a half, then four and a half, and five and a half, so that's about the only way to know a buck's age if you follow them through their growth. But I don't know if I'd have done, there's definitely nothing I could have done different hunting this year. I got the majority, but the vast majority of his pictures where I was hunting. And it's unusual, usually on a straight to get them. Usually it'll be in a tight funnel, but at real close to the sanctuary or, or on a particular corridor coming right out of his sanctuary, and he used one particular one quite a bit. But no, there's nothing I could have done different to kill that buck. Looking back at it entire season, as much information I with with my trail cameras and knowing what I know, I was right the whole time. It was just uh, waiting on a daylight event that never took place. Uh, and I would probably still hunted buck knowing I would to kill him because I gathered, you know, I crave learning and knowledge, like I said. And I gathered a lot of it. So, no, there's nothing I could have done to kill him. Now, if I'd have had one daylight picture of him at a particular other place, that would have been a luck event to me. I mean, I'd like to have been there and killed him, but if I had one day, like picture of him, say, in a place I only got one picture of him, that picture, or two pictures of it, I would not tell or and say to myself, I hunted that deer wrong. I should have been there. I would never say that because I hunted him where I got the vast majority of his pictures, so I was hunting him right. I had figured his travel corridors out. I knew the cameras. He would go by one, then another, then back around. I had him figured out, and I hunted him right, so no... As far as that particular deer is concerned, there's nothing I could have done different.
2: You said that you follow these bucks for years, and, you know, we also mentioned that, or you also mentioned that a lot of these bucks are of a mature class, like six and a half years or so, or older. Is, is, older, older age. Right. Here,
3: older age.
0: So,
2: yep. these deer, though, they start out younger you know of course so i'm wondering with you following these deer on camera for that many years is does this you know kind of nocturnal movement does it start at a young age or is this kind of a progression with their age
3: from my observation fellas i don't know everything and uh, i know people put radio trackers on these deer and they learn more now than we used to i've Years ago, we just had personal sightings of ourselves and other hunters to know about a particular buck, and, and plus interpreting this sign. I, I'd know where a particular buck strafe was, and I'd identify his tracking, the strafing, and so some more coming in there, and we used that to some degree, but not like we do now with these trail cameras. And from, from what I've seen and from what I know, this particular buck, I've seen him a lot when he was four and a half. I've seen him in the middle of the day like a lot of mature bucks do, running, looking for does. I've seen him uh, go through an open field one time in the middle of the day. I I seen this buck a lot when he was four and a half. I seen him quite a bit when he was five and a half. That is when I quit hunting this ground. I wished I if I'd have kept with it, I might could have identified when he'd be. But this buck was not nocturnal at four and a half or five and a half. Now, are all nine and a half year old bucks nocturnal? Absolutely not. I killed one that was seven and a half years old that had a habit of moving during daylight. All older types of bucks are not nocturnal, but I do believe as they get older they tend to get more nocturnal, and you, I believe it is an a trait in them. But I also believe that it's a survival mechanism. I believe the more they come in contact with human hunters in the daytime and human there's a lot more humans move around in the daytime than there are out there at night. And I believe the more they come in contact with people and the more they understand the dangers of that. They know where after their hide. Uh, I believe they become more nocturnal. And you might consider that they're breeding urge slows down, it's not as strong, even though a a four-and-a-half or five-and-a-half-year-old buck or a a six-and-a-half-year-old buck may know the dangers of the human predator. He allows the excitement and the pull of the breeding season, that inherent urge to reproduce, he allows it to let him make mistakes that he otherwise would know better. And I know this is the case, and you guys do too if you think about it, because outside the rut during, say, first October last September, you won't see that Moving in daylight much of that age slice well. So I, I, to answer your question, I really believe as bucks age, they get more and more nocturnal. Now, do I know 100% that the beast, this nine and a half year old deer, did not move once in daylight or one partial day in daylight? Maybe slip out of his sanctuary uh, just a little bit before when it was still legal shooting light. No, I don't. Uh, with the number of cameras I had out and the way I, I know where to put them, I had them tied on his corridors. I don't believe he did. But even if he did, the, the chances of one individual, even somebody that knows what they're doing and hunting all day, even in 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 a 40-day period, if he did slip up one time, the chances of him getting killed, you could still call him nocturne, uh, unkillable, I think, uh, by any practical purposes anyway. Uh in that amount of time if he just moved one time but I don't think he did but I don't want to get off on another line of thought so just to answer your question I think as they age they do get more nocturnal, on I think it probably is a survival mechanism they just be a trait they have too if you were to go into a large sanctuary where no hunting was ever allowed I still believe you'd see this trait in them you know humans ain't the only predators you know, white tailed back in the day, a lot of cougar everywhere, and bear. And I don't believe it's just because of maybe maybe humans them encountering humans during the daylight. It could be a trait that has evolved into their gene through through a long period of time of being, living in a predator prey world. And they're a prey animal, so it could be an inherit. Uh, you might say DNA. I believe. I believe the blood flowing through our veins influences a lot more than environment. But that's another story.
2: Well, did that answer your question? Uh, yes, sir. Any of these uh, cameras were, you know, they're near daylight pictures that you're picking up? Or were they all like mostly in the middle of the night? or?
3: Only one was within 30 minutes of daylight. Only one of the morning. It was of the morning and within 30 minutes of daylight. And it was only one, only one photo draft. I never, it was, at the, it was at the major strafe where I was going into, and he had come through about 10 minutes before I went in there. Now, could I have spooked that deer that morning and made him harder to kill? I didn't hear no indications of it. Generally, you'll know if you spook one, and I thought a lot about it after I seen I had his picture there. Uh, but a lot of times you will, a lot of times, a lot of times, fellas, you'll think a buck's not nocturnal or just you're not set up right when you don't realize that when you was walking in there 10, 15, 30 minutes before daylight, you you spooked a buck and, and he snuck off or stood still and let you walk by and with a light on your head. They'll do that sometimes. And then he just wrote that standoff as a, as a dangerous situation. But I didn't get any pictures of him in any other locations in daylight either. I just don't think that was the case. Let's face it. We're going to hunt in the best spots available to us, and where that deer comes through the most is where we're going to hunt. And you got to go to your stand sometime. You might say, "Man, I should have come in here an hour before daylight," because I went in there thirty minutes before daylight and I spooked the deer, and it might have been him. so well, you got to get in there sometime. And the chances are just as out you spooking you him ten minutes before daylight or, or or an hour before daylight. It's just a it's just a luck factor that we have no control over. I'm sorry, I keep. Rabbits down, rabbits down holes but I'll, I'll try to stick more to the question because I know you guys may be on time restraint.
2: So my next question kind of goes off of that same thing. Would you rather hunt a camera where you had him 30 minutes before daylight or where you had him most on camera?
3: I would rather hunt where I had him most on camera. It's been my observation through the years that where he frequents the most, if he's going to slip up and and move during daylight, that is where you're going to kill him. I would, I would, I would, I dare say that if I had one daylight picture of a buck in one place and three nighttime pictures of him at another place, I would hunt where I got the three nighttime pictures. Once, one event is just that, it's an event. Two shows a pattern, three movement of, it. three pictures or three times of him going through a certain area is a habit. That's the way I look at it. So, you, like I said, the number one thing that keeps material bucks a- alive, now this is very important, it's not their ability to use the wind, it's not their survival instinct, their cunning or their intelligent. It is the fact that they have nomadic movements, They there's no pattern to a material buck's movements during the rut, and they and move over a large range. So, you might get one picture of him one time at a certain place, and it happens a lot. Or you might see him the first time. The first time that big ten point that I told you come within seven yards of me, the first time he come through there, I was sitting there. That was the only picture I got of that deer. So that is very hard to predict. You're just as apt. If you get one picture of him somewhere, you're just as apt to hunt a tree stand that you ain't got no pictures of him and, and be just as well off or better off. But now, if you get two pictures, that means something, or three, that really means something. Even though they're at night, it shows the corridor for him, and when he does move in daylight, that that's where I want to be set, and that's where that's I'm playing the odds, and some people might disagree, but I've done this for a long time, and I believe it's more significant. It's more important to be where that deer has been more than once.
0: Bobby, what other tips do you have for guys running trail cameras, and also... Well, I'll let you answer that, but also kind of the second part to just other tips running trail cameras uh, and and keying in on some of that information is, do you run trail cameras post rut, like through the end of season to try to get any patterns on bucks that may still be alive uh, to kind of figure out some areas you want to start in for next year?
3: I'm not interested in what they do after the season. I want to hunt a buck in the rut. I don't want to kill him on a food source before season or after the season. I love hunting, that's just me. I love hunting mature bucks with the big necks and shoulders running around looking for doe. That's just, that's just what I enjoy about the sport. I don't want to kill a buck that's lost away that comes food plots, you know, before dark one evening. I no, now, if there is a good food source, and I want to find out that there may be some bucks in the area I'm not familiar with, and there's a good say there's a standing cornfield, or you want to plant a standing cornfield, or, or say after the season you want to put corn feeder, that's a that's a good way to really draw them in and concentrate them, especially if you hadn't had that many cameras or you hadn't had them spread out good, you might find that there's a buck that there's a buck there that a big material buck there that you didn't know about that you want to hunt, and you're concentrating more that time of year where you might find his shed, too. Then you, your job then is to go find him, go find his sanctuary. When I told you that that ten won't come of me and the next day, I went and put a camera up, and the next day I got his picture. How do you think I found his sanctuary so quick? Fellas, I went to all the thick, all the thick cover on that hunting property. You'll not get you the the biggest most the oldest most mature buck is going to be in the thickest roughest part of that area. There is there is no real let's just say I walked a mile and I was or half a mile and I was in big wood and I say, well this looks like a pretty tight funnel or it looks like a, a pretty good trail here I'm gonna put my camera out. You're not going to find a mature buck area like that. It's going to be in a habitat break that it, that includes, it's going to be going from hardwoods to a big briar patch or a clear cut or something. I went to all the thick clear cuts and briar thickets and tangles I knew on that property. And when I got to one of them, there was big rubs. And I got to thinking about where I seen him and how the, how the lay of the land lays. And I, it was even though it was nearly a mile away, I knew immediately that was that big ten point but there's probably eight or ten rubs right there. And just so happened there's a tight spot going into the rubs and I put the camera there the next day I had his picture. So if you're on a you, you put a camera on a good food source and you you get a good bucks picture, then you know it's probably not where you've had most of your cameras if you ain't got his picture or where you've been concentrating. But if you'll get out and travel and go to the edges, the habitat breaks, from hardwoods to to something that's uh nasty and impenetrable and clear cut something different then you can find those bucks core areas but now, there ain't a whole lot of reason for me to run the cameras after the rut to work out a travel pattern of bucks during the rut some people might and uh, let's see you asked me about some points about the cameras I tell you I, I like the blackout I have seen infrared flash Scared deer, and I've seen the fly scared deer. Now I live in a remote area. Some of you guys that hunt in the Midwest or in the South, where well, there's a lot of hunters on every piece of ground, I don't know why you'd want to hunt a mature buck there anyway. But you know, the number of hunters equals dead deer. That's just a simple fact about it. That's why hunting hunting time in the stand is so important. But the deer may grow up get being used to your cameras, but in some of my areas they're not because it's so remote. And I've seen. I've took pictures. I put cameras up in the tree and took pictures of cameras taking pictures of deer. <laughs> if I was a squirrel hunter, I believe I'd have trail cameras out after squirrels, fella. But anyway, sometimes that that, camera, that deer don't like it flash. Well, I wouldn't like a bright light hitting me in the eyes either, but you get them up on the trees sometimes, you can get them on the trees, especially if you've got a point of interest like a scrape or a real tight trail or a real tight funnel. You can put them on a the tree eight or ten feet and point them down. I like to use that but I like the blackouts I like the ones that not the infrared flash but with the black flash that when you're looking at it, you can't even see them I've never noticed a deer even pay a bit of attention to them cameras even in the daylight if you've got an infrared camera out or a flash camera during the daylight you'll know they'll be coming up through there and they'll look right at that camera and kind of ease around it they know that there's something spooky about that camera because they've been flashed at night And some of them, deer may be so sensitive to it that they go behind it, or they avoid going through their bite. So one of the things I'd say is, be careful about the type of camera you use. And if you can afford them, I think cellular cameras would be the answer. Uh, I don't put mine out. I put mineral licks around all the thickets to find my deer's core areas, around all the real thick places, because during the summer they're gonna be that's where they're going to be. They're not roaming far. They're not going far. They're going to be associated with some kind of cover. And I put the mineral licks out. You know, it's allowed. Where it's allowed, you, you all can do that in whatever state you're in if it's allowed. And then I don't put my cameras on the mineral licks until the end of July. That they're By then, their racks are pretty well formed. And when I start getting pictures of them, I want it to be then. Now, this is back before the black out cameras I would always use flash or then infrared come out but when the flash camera is the only option I would only put them out at the end of July cause the first picture of that deer you get of that deer may be the only ones that he's really camera shy and back then they were uh, I, there's no use really putting them out too early in the year, you know, early in October, unless you get a real cold snap coming through. If you've got a cold snap coming through, throw them out there because, uh, especially at night, them bucks are going to get up moving. Uh The biggest thing is just to have plenty of cameras and not, not check them in a way that will be disturbing to the deer, you know. Make sure you're not leaving any ground sin, and make sure you're not going from one camera to another the same way that the deer travels. Uh, but I like a lot of cameras, and I check them often, and if I could afford the cameras, uh, I may look at it next year or two since I'm getting back into this pretty serious. I think they're a great tool, would be a great tool, but I'd want the ones with the black flash, the blackout, I think they call them.
0: Awesome. Well, uh, Bobby, I've got one other question that, that's come to mind from a, uh, a comment I saw on one of my posts about one of your post episodes or past episodes, um, which is uh, book availability. Had, I've had a couple guys reach out about wanting to buy some books, and uh, I haven't been on your website recently. I don't know if you're totally sold out of everything, but um, is there any uh, possibilities of uh, any more copies being made or anything like that for any kind of guys? Or if a guy, if there's not going to be any copies, do you think he'd be able to find something maybe on uh, eBay, depending on uh, which book he's looking for?
3: The last price I've seen on my my little green book, that North American Whitetail Magazine, it's the first and only book they've ever published the last price i've seen on that was three hundred and sixty something dollars and my passionate quest book the one i self-published my bigger book i've, I've seen prices of two thousand dollars i of course they're out of print uh... i tell you i've got about ten or twelve i've got some extra copies of the passionate quest i put back and uh... i might release a few of these before too long uh... They'll be pricey, but that'd be the only reason I'd release them anyway. Uh, but my family and friends is pretty well. That's why I kept a few, but I, I'm pretty well. Uh, there's one or two more guys, I think, that's one for their kids. But I, I believe I'd release a few of them. We might talk about Jacob Jake. It might do something on on your podcast there to turn loose a few of them. Now, I've got a passionate quest, too. I call it Request, R-E-Q-DASH-Q-U-S-T. Uh, it's it's a volume 2 of Passionate Quest. It's probably another 100 or 150 pages, some of the information I've done in these podcasts. Uh, so I've been working on it for quite a few years, even before I started doing podcasts. I've got it on my computer now. Uh, I don't know if it'll ever get printed or not, but I'd like to print it. Uh, I may be able to afford it someday. They're high, you know, thirty, forty thousand dollars 40000 to get quite a few copies where you can get the price down. I'd like to put it out. I think it's my best work. It's got all of my writings and uh, all of my thoughts on deer hunting. Now, Passionate Quest, the one that's about $2,000 now, at that time had all of my thoughts, but this new one's got more now and got stuff about my boy. Some of y'all's read the articles and stories about him and some of his hunting experiences, the one I lost. I'd like to put it out someday, and I want to try to put it out, if I do, in a soft back uh, because... There's a lot of people out there that just can't afford to pay. My first one, when it first came out, Passionate Quest, was like $135. I know there's a lot of people out there that just can't afford that, but it's really expensive to get a book like that printed. I'd like to do it in a softback maybe, but I, I can't say if and when. I just can't promise anybody anything, but I, I'll i know here in a few months. I'm working trying to work out a deal now, but I think I... I'd like to put that out. I do have a few of the hardback, the Passionate Quest books available, so we'll look at that later. I I hate it. I love sharing knowledge, and I just I just don't have that means right now as far as a, a lot of books that I can sell at a reasonable price where the majority of hunters can hound, but I do want to do that later.
0: Excellent. Well, yeah, Bobby, that that would be great. And, of course, we'll talk a little bit more about that at at a later time. But, uh, listen, I just want to say we appreciate you coming on for uh, this episode and kind of sharing this knowledge about – Again, you know, knowing whether you have an unkillable buck on your hands, you know, from the listener's perspective uh, and a lot of other really good details in this episode. And again, like always, you know, I know listeners thoroughly enjoy when you come on, share a lot of this knowledge and a lot of this experience. And it's fun to talk to you You just like it was, again, seeing you at ATA and getting together and uh, kind of seeing you and Paul and everybody. Um, it's it's always a good time talking with you and kind of you know picking your brain, and getting your side of the experience from you know guys like us that are just extremely curious and want to know as much as we can when it comes to you know finding targeting you know these larger whitetails and just what is possible when you put the time and effort into it and uh, you know many decades of worth of experience. But uh, Bobby, again, thank you for coming on. Do you have any final thoughts or anything you want to uh, discuss or, or hit on just before we just totally wrap this episode up?
3: Well, I guess. We need to finish up here, Jacob. I'm I'm leaking pretty good. Uh, I've got to get up and put another wrap of tape on my finger here.
0: Now, Bobby, did you cut your
3: finger? No, Jacob. I got bit. Got bit? Now, bit by what? All I can say is, never try to teach a pig how to sing. It don't work anyway, and it's really annoying to the pig, <laughs> Jacob. <laughs> By the third course of Old McDonald, he'd had enough. Perton here took the tip of my directing finger off for me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> so, I want to I would have to get around here and do a little something about that. I really appreciate the opportunity you guys have given me to talk a little bit about, about my passion and especially to pass it on. I, I really appreciate that, and, and I hope that everyone listening has at least picked up a point or two in in this podcast on the unkillable buck and i just want you to know i really appreciate it and what you guys do for the hunting industry it's 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 really it's really changed hunting for a lot of people so i really do thank you and i know everybody else does too
0: absolutely bobby well of course we appreciate you coming on and sharing your knowledge with us and sharing those experiences because that's something that You know, you you can't teach experience and you can't sell experience. You know, experience is the one thing that you you got to earn yourself. Um, And, you know, when we have guys like yourself on and and a lot of other just, you know, real serious hunters, you know, the experience is the one thing that you cannot translate through a podcast. So hopefully just the ideas and everything we've discussed, especially about, you know, Unkillable Buck and everything else, uh, along with some of these other topics, can kind of give people and listeners more of an idea of – Maybe different steps to take to figure out how to handle different situations, but in all be all, they've got to go out there and try it themselves and, and figure out what's going to work for them. Uh, because again, you can only learn so much from a podcast. Hopefully, these podcasts uh, keep uh, you know the listeners engaged and, and uh, excited for deer seasons, especially for this upcoming deer season. For some of these uh, you know states and listeners that's you know their seasons already closed out, like Tennessee and a lot of others. Um, but again you know we appreciate you coming on here sharing that knowledge and uh, again hopefully uh, we can have you on again on a future episode of the southern outdoorsman podcast and discuss some other topics as well because of course bobby listeners always love when you come on and, and share some of these different topics and, and really dive
3: deep on them thank you so much guys uh, yes we, we will definitely consider that at a later time
1: Y'all go ahead and write down the dates, June 28th through June the 30th. Go ahead and just mark those off your calendar so you can be at the Dalton Convention Center in Dalton, Georgia for the 2024 Mobile Hunters Expo. Y'all heard a, a ton of content from that expo last year that we posted. Uh, we talked about it a ton. Look, if you're the kind of person that listens to this podcast, this show was literally made for you. It was literally designed for you, which means you're going to love it. You know, All the best companies in mobile hunting are going to be there. A lot of the best deer killers in the Southeast are going to be there. A lot of our past podcast guests are going to be there. It's just, it's going to be an incredible event. And hey, if you've been looking to either get into a saddle or maybe a mobile lock-on setup or just a different kind of tree stand setup, I'm telling you it's worth the investment to go to this show because they're all going to be there and you, you will get to try all of them in person before you buy it. So you don't have to order something online and then wait for it and then try it when it comes in to see if you really like it. You're going to get to go put your hands on everything all in one day, test it all out and figure out exactly what works best for you and have it taken care of before deer season starts. So like I said, go ahead and put it on your calendar, guys. It's a no brainer. You got to be at the show. Again, it's Friday, June 28th through Sunday, June 30th in Dalton, Georgia. We absolutely cannot wait to meet you guys there and talk hunting. So we'll see you at the 2024 Mobile Hunters Expo in Dalton, Georgia.